This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We have seen a large number of people deciding that renting a house or an apartment was a better financial move for them than buying a house. That has driven up rent prices in the United States over the last several years. But now there appears to be a problem right at the feet of many of those people. They are apparently rent burdened. They are spending too much of their take-home pay on rents for the properties that they are living in. New research from the Pew Charitable Trust says that the number of people in this predicament has been growing quickly over the last few years. Aaron Courier is director of the Financial Security and Mobility Project with the Pew Charitable Trust, and she joins us uh, to talk about uh, their research. Aaron, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so take us into the data here, because obviously this is this continues to be an important story to tell because of the fact that so many people still today, a decade out from the housing bubble and the recession, feel that renting is a better option than buying a home. That's right. And, you know, the impetus for this research on our side was that a couple of years ago, we did an analysis of all of the expenditures that households have, all the money that they're spending, and we could see that households were seeing huge increases in the cost of housing, both in terms of just how much they were spending and absolute dollars each month, but also relative to other areas of spending. And so what this report does is look at the 43 million U.S. households that now rent their homes. That's a figure that, as you say, has been growing quite a bit in recent years. And as it has grown, the proportion of renters who struggle with their rent has also grown. So we're defining people who are rent burdened. That that term means anybody who's spending 30% or more of their income on rent. And so how many uh, are you able to gauge nationally how many people are falling into that category right now? Yes, this research finds that 38% of renter households are rent burdened, and that's an increase of 19% just since 2001. Another 17% fall into a category that we call severely rent burdened. These are households spending at least 50% of their income just on rent. How, how significant of a group is that part of it? Because you worry more and more because we haven't seen the, the incredible strong wage growth that I think a lot of people were hoping to see, especially in the last couple of years. How many people are, are, are starting to fall into that severely burdened category? And is it a worry that that, that territory is growing? Yes, that territory has grown 42% just since 2001. So that's really where we're seeing the most growth. And you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, this is a basic supply and demand um, issue, right? There are many, many more households across the age spectrum who are renting, and that is driving up the cost of rent. But at the same time, we're just not seeing increases in median income. So households are seeing their expenses tick up without any additional funds to cover those expenses, and that pushes them closer and closer to rent burden or severe rent burden. And for many families, they're falling off that cliff. Uh, What then ends up being the the real world impact 
of these people paying so much for their rent? Right. Well, our project is really concerned with family financial security uh, writ large, right? So we're interested in thinking about income and whether income is enough to cover expenses and what does that mean in terms of money left over for savings or wealth building? How are people using debt? So we're really trying to look at this picture of rent burden from a 30,000 foot view. What we are seeing is that rent-burdened households are financially insecure in other ways. Nearly two-thirds have less than $400 cash held in a bank account, and half have less than $10 in savings. So that means that the typical rent-burdened household basically has no money set aside to deal with any kind of income shock or financial emergency. And just as a comparison, Half of homeowners have $7,000 in savings. So rent burden families are really in a completely different um, space in terms of their ability to just weather unexpected expenses and, and life. Life happens. You know, we have things break down. You have expenses you didn't plan for. If you don't have any kind of cushion and you're already struggling in terms of having a more month than money, then the rent burden is just one bigger piece of this broader puzzle that points to financial vulnerability. The other interesting part to it, and, and you know, it's, it's not necessarily in the financial security, but it does kind of tell you where the path is continuing. When you think about the construction that is going on in this country right now, when builders are building new properties, they are leaning towards building rental communities first and not necessarily the, uh, the single-family home. Obviously, there's a a belief that this rental issue is going to continue on for a significant period of time in terms of the numbers of people deciding that they want to rent. Well, you know, our research is looking all the way back to 2001. And this trend has been in place and growing each year since 2001. So as I said, 43 million U.S. households are renting now, but that's an increase of 9.3 million households just since 2004. And at the same time, the trends in home ownership have gone down. One of the really surprising findings to us in this research was that the share of households that rent has increased by at least 10 percentage points since 2001 for all age groups. So this is not just millennials choosing to delay home ownership or, or, you know, some sort of demographic shift just with one age group. This is across the spectrum. And interestingly, the current spike in renting is actually being propelled by people age 55 and older. Right. And, and I, with my mother, who is, is kind of in that realm right now, I'm starting to see that specifically, that you are seeing more uh, older groups that are wanting to get out of their home and uh, start to look at rent, which then brings up a unique dynamic is that if you have older generations starting to want to get out of homes, this concern about the amount of properties available, you would think would be eased, that there would be more properties for the younger generations to go there. But again, as you said, the decision for a lot of these younger people is, I'm, I'm going to wait it out for a while. I'm going to wait several years. I'm going to stay in the rental to maybe I get to 28, 29, maybe even into my 30s. They're not taking advantage of some of these properties being available, or they don't even have the money to be able to put down payments on these, on these uh, types of properties. Right. I, that is the rub, right? You know, interestingly, um, 
recent survey by our sister organization, the Pew Research Center, found that 72% of current renters said they want to buy a home at some point. So it's not necessarily a lack of desire or even a sort of changing definition of, you know, how we define the American dream. But the reality is that a lot of households are just having a harder time qualifying for a mortgage or they're struggling to save for a down payment. And you can see why. If rent burden families in particular are becoming more and more common and those rent burden families are having difficulty in terms of putting money into savings and, and just sort of um, handling their rent relatively you know, unexpected but typical expenses month to month or year to year, yeah. they are in a much more precarious position. That does make it much more difficult to transition to homeownership, even if that's the goal. Well, and obviously when, when financial security is such a big topic right now in general, uh, and you hear the stories about whether or not millennials are, are putting uh, enough away when they're in their 20s or, or even the fact that you have so many from the baby boomer generation that were hit significantly by the recession that, you know, they were starting to work longer into their lives just to be able to recoup some of this money. I mean, it's interesting that I think at times people don't necessarily associate the financial savings part with the with the housing part of it, but they are really intertwined in this in this situation. That is absolutely the case. In fact, all of these things are intertwined. You know, when we when we take a big step back and just think about sort of financial security broadly for American households, our research is showing very clearly that the sort of perhaps the common perception or the image that comes to mind if you think of a financially vulnerable family is not necessarily accurate. Financial vulnerability goes much higher up the income distribution than I think we typically realize. There are families who are making well above the median that still struggle to make sure that all of their expenses are paid every month. Families may be struggling with debt that is unsustainable or difficult for them to pay. And many, many households have very little in savings. At the same time, income volatility, so, you know, big changes, swings in income of at least 25% over a year or two-year period are really common, and so are financial shocks. In a survey that we did that was nationally representative, we found that 60% of households experienced an unexpected financial cost yeah. in the previous 12 months, and that for the typical household, their most expensive shock was $2,000. When we compare mm. that to the lack of savings that households have, you can see that the numbers just very quickly don't add up. And so more and more as we think about these challenges, rent burden being one of them, we think it's really important for policymakers to try to take a big step back and think about this from the 30,000 foot view and say, okay, families need more income, they need fewer expenses, they need more (laughs) savings, and looking at any one of those things in a vacuum really blurs uh, the big picture. You're getting the elephant's tail, but not the whole elephant. Uh, And unfortunately, when you put all of those pieces together, that's not a a scenario, at least right now, that is looking positive on, on a lot of fronts. 
We are talking with Aaron Courier of the Pew Charitable Trust here on Knowledge of Wharton. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. In, not necessarily in your research, but are, are you able to gather uh, ideas from other sources as, as to how we potentially need to think about starting to turn this around. Obviously, wage growth is is one piece to it, uh, but you lay out in, in the report how significantly rents have increased in comparison to wage growth over the last several years. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge is that there's not a silver bullet solution to this, right? We, you know, we started this work uh, several years ago from the perspective of the health and status of the American dream. So we were very, very much focused on economic mobility more broadly. How do families move up and down the economic ladder over their lifetimes and across generations? And what does that mean to have a healthy American dream? Is it still possible? Who's able to achieve it? And what does that mean to Americans? What does it look like? What are the things that propel somebody up an economic ladder? And what are the things that sort of drag them down? And that research made really clear that while lots of things are going on, lots of things simultaneously sort of helping or harming families, one of the most basic elements of economic mobility is just short-term financial security. We can't expect people to move up the economic ladder over time if they're really struggling day-to-day or week-to-week just to pay their bills, just to have a little bit of Um, good sleep at night in terms of having enough money. And what we see over and over and over again is that there isn't going to be one simple quick fix. It isn't going to be that just dealing with um, promoting accessible and affordable higher education is going to be the fix or dealing with affordable and high quality child care will be the fix. Unfortunately, there are systems of advantage and disadvantage that we really need to pull apart. We have to look at the whole onion and peel it apart layer by layer and really look to see where are families feeling pinched and how do we create better systems for them to make that path towards upward mobility smoother. But the other problem where where, what I see here is that not only do you need to to have some of these pieces come together, but there also probably has to be some conversation with some of the elements that are involved in this in general. And seemingly, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon when you're talking about, you know, the coordination between uh, the people that are building the rental properties and the banking sector and, you know, a lot of these different elements that that kind of play into this that could have an influence of either a kind of loosening things up a little bit so that people have the opportunity to buy a house or you know be able to have an easier time uh with renting because seemingly the rental market is just looking they're looking to to charge what they can to be able to turn the biggest profit at this point Right. There's no question that this is really complicated and any specific sort of um, path that you'd go down in terms of trying to untangle where families are struggling could could present similar roadblocks and challenges. One of the things that I think is important to take away from our research, not just this report, but the broad scope of research that we've done on family balance sheets and economic mobility is that federal and state and local legislators really need to think 
comprehensively and at a higher level. It is always a good idea to tackle any one of these pieces, especially if that's where a particular jurisdiction is feeling that they have the most leeway to make make change. But I think the broader point is that our research is providing very, very strong evidence that families who are financially insecure run the gamut across the income and wealth distribution, that there are some common themes. And in this report particularly, let's just take rent burden, to keep in mind that rent burden families are not just struggling with shelter. They're also struggling with saving money. They're not as likely to transition to homeownership. They're much more vulnerable to income shocks and financial emergencies. And that has big implications for the economy at both a local and yeah. a national level. Uh, you know, we sort of note with this report that if you're spending 30 or 40 or 50 percent of your income just on shelter, you are not in a position to contribute to the growth of the economy. And that is a problem that all of us can understand at a very base level. Well, and I guess to a degree, then it has to be a question not only about taking it grander scale, not only for some of the elements, some of the sectors that are involved in this, but uh, it, it has to be something that, that may need to be discussed at the at the government level, at the federal and at the state level, so that they truly understand what the problem is and that they can potentially address it if need be. That's absolutely the case. I also think there's at least some silver lining here. The, the, the hopeful side of me, having been in this space for a while, sees that when you actually look at these data and you break it down into a simple question of the health of the American dream or something around what we believe our country can and should do to promote economic opportunity for everyone, right. there is a lot of uh, bipartisan support around the idea that people who are working hard, who are playing by the rules, should absolutely be able to get ahead. And even though I know it sounds very cliche and we all want to sort of roll our eyes at this concept of the American dream, the truth is that people genuinely still believe that the United States is and should be exceptional in its ability to promote upward mobility from the bottom. And as long as that is the case, this idea of protecting the American dream, of protecting families that are working hard, is something that Republicans and Democrats and independents can at least come to the table around. We have been a part of a bipartisan group um, in the Senate, the Senate Economic Mobility Caucus, for many, many years now. And this is a group of thoughtful legislators that come together to learn about ways that policy can affect family economic well-being. So it is possible. It's not easy. None of this is easy. But I do think that it's important to recognize where there are bipartisan frames. And economic mobility is very bipartisan. The hope, obviously, is that the rental market will settle down to to a degree. But again, the, the, the problem is, is that, it, as, as I mentioned before, with all the construction going on, it doesn't even seem like the builders feel like we're at an oversaturation point with, with all of the rental properties. No, that's true. But as more rental properties come on the market and the, the, the sort of demand is met by the capacity of, of rental properties to live in, the, the prices should slowly come back down. And that could also encourage people to be able to save a little bit and then enter the housing market, which would also relieve some pressure on the rental market. So, you know, there, there, 
it's going to be slow. These are these are slow moving trends, but there is a potential for things to loosen up in the future. Erin Courier is with the Pew Charitable Trust. She is the Director of Financial Security and Mobility Project with Pew Charitable Trust. Erin, again, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Greatly appreciate your time. Uh, fantastic work. And, and hopefully, again, you know, we'll be talking about a better situation here in the weeks and months to come. Well, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 